few months ago, I read in a Christianity Today article, an article by Charlie Dates. He tells this story. One of the strangest lawsuits in U.S. court history was filed on September 14th of 2007. Nebraska Senator Ernie Chambers was seeking to stop evil and injustice in the world, and so he actually filed a lawsuit against God. The lawsuit sought a permanent injunction against God's interference in this world. To explain the rationale of his suit, Chambers said of God, God has allowed certain harmful activities to exist that have caused grave harm to innumerable people in the world. The lawsuit charged God with causing fearsome floods egregious earthquakes, horrendous hurricanes, tornadoes, plagues, famines, devastating droughts, genocidal wars, birth defects, and the like. And Chambers continued in the lawsuit saying that God has allowed calamitous catastrophes resulting in widespread death, destruction, and terrorization of millions upon millions of Earth's inhabitants, including innocent babies, infants, children, the aged, and the infirm without mercy or distinction. Eventually, this baseless lawsuit was dismissed with prejudice. The Nebraska Supreme Court ruled that they could not properly notify God to defend Himself because they didn't have His address. Senator Chambers disagreed with the ruling, claiming that because God is omniscient and knows everything, He should have known that He was being sued and should have appeared in court to defend himself. Now, we may laugh and smirk and ridicule Senator Chambers for his ill-reasoned accusations. We may want to acknowledge a bit his honesty. You see, Chambers is not alone in seeking to put God on trial. Throughout history, throughout the centuries, men and women have put God on trial Whenever humanity is faced with incongruities of life, such as that bad things happen to good people, or worse, that good things happen to bad people. When things like that happen, you and I, if we're honest with ourselves, put God on trial. Why, God, do you allow evil men and women to succeed? I'm sure you've asked this question many a times. As we continue our study in our sermon series entitled Love and War, Habakkuk is going to do the very same thing. When he puts God on trial in a sense, and wants to ask why God seemingly allows evil people to succeed. If you remember from two weeks ago, Habakkuk had a question for God, his first question was, why does sin seem to go unpunished? And God's answer to the prophet was that He would raise up a nation called the Babylonians, and He would use them to adjudicate His judgment upon the injustices that was being done in the land of Judea. It was revealed to Habakkuk that the Babylonians would be fearsome. Now this raised another question in the mind of Habakkuk. Question two in this book, how could God use a more wicked nation than Judah 
to punish His own chosen people. The modern-day equivalent of this question is, why does God allow evil people to succeed? How does God answer this question? Let's take a look. Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the book of Habakkuk, and we continue our study in this book, chapter 1, verse 12, and we're going to be taking a look at these verses all the way to chapter 2, verse 20. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12, to chapter 2, verse 20. In verses 12 to 17, the prophet Habakkuk will express his question. It echoes the questions of our hearts. Look with me at verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O God, my Father, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You have appointed them for judgment, O Rock. You have marked them for correction. Habakkuk begins this section by reiterating his belief in verse 12 that there is only one God, that He lived from everlasting to everlasting from the beginning of time, and that this God was sovereign and this God was powerful. And because of God's sovereign hand at work, history advances in accordance with His will. In fact, with this assurance, Habakkuk says in verse 12 that Israel as a nation will not perish as a people. They will not die. And yet somehow... He questions that in the sovereign hand of God, why He would select the savage Babylonians to discipline Israel and bring them back to right standing with Him. Why would He allow the Babylonians to succeed? In fact, He challenges God a bit in verse 13. Look with me. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devour a person more righteous than he? Habakkuk notes in verse 13, God, you are a holy God, as if God needed to be reminded of this. If you are a holy God, why would you allow a wicked nation to deal with your chosen people? Do you somehow approve of it is the implied question. God, you are holy. Do you approve of wickedness? Why couldn't you use someone else? Will God do anything to a nation that takes advantage of people more righteous than them? For Habakkuk and for us, something is not right that a just and holy God would dare to use wicked people, sinners, to discipline and punish others better than them. You see, I think if I were to take a survey this morning, the vast majority of us would have no problems, I believe, with being disciplined or corrected if you and I have done wrong. We wouldn't mind if someone were to rebuke us and correct us, but that person has to be someone who is better than us, who is holier than us. And so that's why we expect, as the Scriptures also state, that our leaders, our Christian leaders, our pastors, our ministers should live lives that are more righteous, a higher standard, so that they have the moral ascendancy and authority to rebuke and correct. And therefore, the people can then take it. But let's use as a hypothetical example, and it is a hypothetical example, that if I were to tell you and you were to know that I'm a drunkard, that I am an adulterer, and again, I reiterate that this is hypothetical, that if I stole and if I constantly lied, and that is who I am, 
And I came here every Sunday morning and told you how you needed to live your life. Would you listen quietly? You'd probably be thinking where you're sitting, how dare you say that? I know about your life. You have no authority to tell me what I need to do. You have no right. It is this exact same question that perturbed the prophet Habakkuk. He was questioning how God and His sovereignty was exercised. It's interesting, a bit ironic, that the very nature of God's sovereignty is that He can do whatever He wants. It's within His right. Therefore, not to be questioned, and yet the prophet is questioning how God acts. Why do you allow evil people to succeed? Why do you use them to take advantage over people who are more righteous than them? Look at verse 14, a very odd accusation. Habakkuk continues, Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? In this odd accusation, the prophet was asking, Why, God, do you allow people to be like fish? Fish have no ruler over them. There's no king of the fish. The implication was, God, I think you've lost control of mankind. Or more likely, because Habakkuk has just affirmed his sovereignty, that, God, you're at fault. Because you've got the power to control these evil people, and you don't do anything about it. Are you a God that is indifferent? The implied question goes out. Are you a God that is useless? Habakkuk has placed God on trial. In verses 15 and 16, the prophet describes Babylon as a fisherman who captures with nation with nets and hooks. And then verse 17, shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? He is puzzled why God would allow the violent Babylonians to succeed and of all nations to use them to discipline His own chosen people. Why does God seemingly allow evil people to succeed? It is the question of many. The answer, verse 1 of chapter 2. I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Now Habakkuk says, Lord, answer me. I'm going to wait for your answer. I'll wait for your answer. And it's a bit funny if you read the last phrase of verse 1. I think the prophet already understood what God was going to say to an extent. He knew what God's answer would be. But look what he says. And what I will answer when I'm corrected. The prophet is saying, God, I'm going to wait for your answer. And if I don't like your answer, I'm going to argue with you. It goes without saying that if you've grown up in the church, most theological questions you can answer. And the reason we ask them is because we don't like the answer. And when we don't like the answer, we're ready to challenge God. Habakkuk, the prophet, has an answer. He's expecting to hear from God, and he is ready to argue back. Verse 2, then the Lord answered me and said, write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who read it. For the vision is set for an appointed time, but at the time it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. 
God says, I am not afraid of my answer. Habakkuk, write it down on tablets. And make sure that what I say, you share it with others. And that's why we're reading it today. And God tells Habakkuk that what's going to happen will be something that happens in the future. However, he needs to understand that it will happen in God's appointed time. So here it is. The Lord's answer to the question, why God seemingly allows evil people to succeed? Verse 4. Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. And after you've read verse 4, you want to shout out the question back to God, what kind of answer is that? I've asked you an easy question, God. Why do you allow evil people to succeed? And you tell me, the just shall live by his faith. That's the answer. What kind of answer is that? Let's unpack this. He begins verse 4 by saying, Behold the proud. The Babylonians were a proud people. His soul is not upright in him. As a proud people, they trusted in their own evil ways. In contrast, the righteous, the just, were to be different. You see, when evil people seem to succeed, they are trusting in their own ways. So the great implication from this verse 4 is that they will not live. Their success is limited. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him. In contrast, the just shall live. Therefore, the proud, the unrighteous, will not. That means that their success, from the perspective of God, is limited. You see this question we ask, Why does God allow evil people to succeed? You need to add an important word there. And here's the word. Why does God allow evil people to succeed temporarily? That word needs to be put into that question. Why does God allow evil people to succeed temporarily? Because the Bible says it is indeed temporary, their success. They will not have a future more than what they are experiencing now. A story is told of a farmer in a Midwestern state who had a strong dislike and disdain for all religious Christian things. So he worked on Sundays, he plowed his fields on Sunday mornings, and he would shake his fist at the church people who passed by his farm on their way to worship the Lord in the local church. Well, October came and it was time for harvest, And surprisingly, or it shouldn't surprise us, that the farmer had his finest crop ever. He had worked every day, and he had the finest crop ever. In fact, he had the best harvest of the entire county. And so to kind of rub it in, he placed an advertisement in the local newspaper which belittled the Christians for their faith in God. And he took out an ad and he wrote these words, Faith in God must not mean very much if someone like me can prosper. Faith in God must not mean much if someone as evil as me, if we can put in those words, can prosper. And we wonder the same thing. Why do we trust God? Why do we live this Christian life when men and women who are unbelievers and evil people and wicked people just seem to prosper and succeed in all that they do? Well, the response of the Christian in their community was quiet and polite. But in the next edition of the town's newspaper, 
a small ad appeared. It simply read these words, God doesn't always settle his accounts in October. Such great truth in that. God doesn't always settle his accounts in October. When we talk about the success of evil men and women, you need to understand that their success is for a limited time. It is temporary. The Bible says in verse 4, but the righteous, the just, will live. Would you circle that word? The just shall live and they will live to experience more of God's blessing in the future. This vital verse, this key verse in the entire book of Habakkuk is so important theologically that it is repeated and referenced three more times in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, the book of Hebrews. The just will live because what's more important than temporal success is eternal success. And how do they do that? The Bible says they are to live by what? His faith. You are to trust God in what He's doing. The just will trust God and He will live. The unrighteous will not trust God and their success is limited. The emphasis to a question that we cannot understand is simply to trust. And that's one of the worst answers we want to get. Isn't it true? When we ask someone something, we want to get a definitive answer because we think we've got a right to know. It affects us. And if that person tells you, trust me, oh, that must annoy you as it does annoy me. But that's exactly what God is saying. You've got a question to God. Why do you allow evil people to succeed? His answer, trust me. I told you it was an answer you wouldn't want to hear. But you see, the very nature of trust is believing in a God that doesn't have to explain everything to you. So we've forgotten about trust. We think we will trust God only when He explains to us how it works. But the very core truth of trust is to trust in someone when He doesn't have to explain anything to you. When you tell your children, trust me, Are you expecting to tell them more? No. That's the end of the conversation. Just trust us. Trust me. If you have to explain the reason for trust, then it is no longer trust. It is a qualified decision based on evidence. We know the character of God. We know of His unconditional love exemplified by His giving of His Son, Jesus on the cross for us. There is no need for more explanation. He simply says, trust me. If you trust what I'm doing, then you will live. If you do it on your own way, you will not get to enjoy a success that lasts. So let me put it all together for you. Number one, if you're taking notes. The righteous will experience eternal success by trusting in the Lord as opposed to limited success by those who do evil. The righteous will experience eternal success 
through faith in the Lord as opposed to limited success for those who do evil. There is a second part in reply to his question of Habakkuk. And God says these words in verse 5. Look with me. Indeed, because he transgresses by wine, he referring to Babylon, he is a proud man, and he does not stay at home, because he enlarges his desires as hell, and he is like death and cannot be satisfied. He gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all peoples. Because the nation of Babylon showed their lack of trust in God and had pride in themselves, the Bible says they will be punished. You see, a prideful person is never satisfied, one who trusts in themselves. They will always desire more and more and more, and that's why for the Babylonians, they sought more land to conquer. And this pride will lead to success, but it will be temporary success because it will lead them to five sins. Five specific sins that are judged by God. And those five sins, we call them five woes because there's five woes in this section in verses 6 to 20, are the specific reasons why God will destroy the nation of Babylon. I hope this list of five things, which we're going to go through quickly, will serve as an assurance to you that if you have been the receiving end of these five things of injustice in your life, then rest assured that God will eventually judge these people for what they have done. You see, the second part I want you to understand, number two, is this. A very simple truth. God will judge all evil people. God will judge all evil people. God may allow them temporary success now. But we're going to see that it doesn't last very long. What are these five sins that come out of the Babylonians' trust in themselves? Take a look at verse 6 to 8. Will not all these take up a proverb against him and a taunting riddle against him and say, Woe, here's the first woe, woe to him who increases what is not his. How long? And to him who loads himself with many pledges, will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Will they not awaken who oppress you and you will become their booty? Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. Because of man's blood and the violence of the land and the city and of all who dwell in it. The first indictment of God against the nation of Babylon was that they were indicted for the sin of corruption. The Bible tells us in verse 6, they took more than what they were due and they made themselves rich by taking advantage of what they did not have and took advantage of those who had needs. And the specific example here in verse 6 is charging ridiculous interest on loans they gave to other nations. And there is a cry in verse 6, how long will this corruption last? I think it's the cry of our nation today. That's why a book like Habakkuk needs to be preached. We'll get more to that later. But the Bible tells us in verse 7 that those from whom the Babylonians had stolen from, the Bible says in verse 7, will rise up and protest, and they will eventually overthrow the Babylonians. I need you to listen carefully. I'm not advocating for you to overthrow your government. I'm simply saying 
is that the Bible tells us these oppressed people will have had enough. And they will rise up. And historically, this is exactly what happens when the Medes and the Persians rose up and they overthrew the Babylonians. This was a prophecy against them. And the punishment of God upon the Babylonians would be that they would be treated in the same way they treated other nations. Just as they corruptly stole from other nations, other nations would now rise up and steal from them. It is no secret that in the index of corruption, our country, unfortunately, ranks very high. It is a country known for corruption. And we cry out like they did in verse 6, when will corruption end? Because it goes to the very nature of this question, why does God seemingly allow evil people to succeed in their corruption temporarily? And so we cry out, and we try to reform from the top, but the middle tiers and the lower tiers do it. We try to reform from the bottom up, but these practices are so ingrained in these institutions as part of their culture. And perhaps you have been a recipient of the injustice of corruption, and it must frustrate you to no end. It frustrates me. And some of you are so frustrated, you wonder that there are many who get away with corruption and they will never be punished. I want to tell you today that verses 6 to 8 of Habakkuk chapter 2 tells us that God will judge all people and He will specifically deal with those who have used corruption to get their way. Rest assured. You know, it's interesting, every time there's a change in the presidency or there's a change in the departmental secretary in our nation, a vast majority of businessmen and women get scared. Now, why do they get scared? They get scared because they don't know if they can still get away with the things they were doing before with a change in administration. Isn't that true? I want you to think about that. One day, there will be a change in the worldwide administration of this nation and around the world. Because the Bible tells us a theocracy where God is ruling will be instituted. And you better be careful if you're practicing this. Because the Bible is very clear. God does not tolerate corruption. The second indictment is in verses 9 to 11. Second woe, woe to him who covets evil gain for his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. You gave shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples and sin against your soul. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the timbers will answer it. The second indictment God had on the people of Babylon was for the sin of self exaltation. Self-exaltation. You see, in verses 9 and 10, we are told that Babylon had used their conquest to build for themselves an empire that they thought would stand forever, that was safe and secure from any disaster. It was so big, and they didn't trust God, but they trusted in their own man-made empire, relying on self through their conquest. But verse 11 tells us the stones and the woods of the nations that they had taken from to build the structures which they prided themselves in would cry out and the Bible tells us God heard the cries of the oppressed. 
Indeed, historically, we know that the walls of Babylon and the gates of Babylon were almost impregnable. So massive and large that historians tell us you could run horse chariot races around the circumference of these outer walls. You know, we still have these walls and gates of Babylon with us today. They're impressive. I've seen them. But they're not in Babylon in Iraq today. You know where they are? They're in the Pergamum Museum in Berlin, Germany. They build a massive museum to only be able to reveal a a small portion of this massive wall. And I kind of laughed when I was there a few years ago, remembering these verses. I said, how ironic. The Babylonians who thought that their walls and gates would stand the test of time, wouldn't they be surprised and find it a bit shameful that now their massive walls and gates are in another country? We have people like this today. These are men and women who proclaim that they have built their empire and business with their own two hands. Be very careful when you begin to have thoughts like that. Be careful when you begin to think that because of my connections, because of the politicians I know, because of the lawyers I know, because of the army folks and the police folks I know, that I am untouchable. Be careful lest you fall into the sin of self-exaltation because this sort of exaltation and reliance is exactly what God loves to take down. God says, I humble the proud You see, it's annoying when we hear people boast about what they've accomplished. Sometimes we want to fight back. We want to tell them certain things. I want to encourage you, just keep silent. Let them boast. Let them boast because their self-exaltation is something the Lord will deal with Himself. You yourself, keep humble. Don't get caught up in the exaltation game. It is very easy, especially in our Asian culture, to get caught up in the exaltation game, the self-exaltation game. Yes, we're supposed to be known as a culture that is very humble, but the sad reality is we're really humble on the outward perspective. But inwardly, we fight tooth and nail to tell you about who we are and what we've accomplished. Isn't that true? In our conversations, we meet someone, we want them them to know immediately who we are and what we've done so that in their eyes, we can have a bit of standing to protect our face. And so this admonition is very relevant for our culture. Do not get caught up where we try to one-up each other in our self-exaltation of our own accomplishments. Now listen carefully, there's nothing wrong with being proud of a God-given accomplishment. There's nothing wrong with that. I just want to let you know it's a very slippery slope. It is a fine line between something that is self-exalting and something that is God-honoring. And where does that fine line division happen? That fine line is the attitude of the heart. You see, there's men and women who will say, praise be to God, To God be the glory in their accomplishments. And they write that just simply to check off that they've given some credit to God. But in reality, they say those words, but it's all about me. Now, the world can't tell. They may think of you someone who is very spiritual. But God knows. 
And he's the judge of those who self-exalt themselves. Because like I said, the fine line between self-exaltation and God-honoring acts is the attitude of the heart. Verse 12 to 14, the third indictment. Verse 12, the third woe. Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city of iniquity. Behold, it is not of the Lord of hosts that the peoples labored to feed the fire and nations weary themselves in vain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In this third indictment against the nation of Babylon, God tells Habakkuk that He would punish them for their sin of cruelty. The Babylonians cruelly and oppressively stomped out other nations from which to build their own empire. Verse 12 clearly states this. Woe to him who builds a town, note this, with bloodshed. But verse 13 tells us that the one who judges the works of all men and women judges the works of the Babylonians and see that their works are done in vain. They have accomplished much. They have succeeded temporarily. But the means by which they found success does not justify how they did it. It was done through cruelty. And therefore, the Bible says, it will not hold the test of fire. This is a condemnation on Babylon's way of building their empire through cruelty and oppression. Because the Bible says only that which glorifies God, only the glory of God will succeed until the very end because at the end, His glory covers the entire world, verse 14, as the waters cover the seas. This is a verse of encouragement to me. I've been in the business world as you are in as well. I know how cutthroat it is. I know the methods that other men and women use to try to push you down. That is the very nature of a business in a capital market. But not only businessmen, even in the world of academics, I don't know what it is. I thought the new 21st century generation young people or young parents would be cooler than their parents. But you know what I see? I see younger parents becoming more competitive for their children. It's quite sad, actually. But some of them are actually cutthroat. There's a reason I don't join those parenting Viber groups. You're laughing because you know it's not very edifying. Those groups are cutthroat. It's like the game of Survivor. Should we share homework with other kids or not? We'll share homework with kids whose kids are not smarter than me. But boy, if they're fighting with my kid for honors, I'll pretend I don't have it. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, it's just as cutthroat as the business world, and it happens throughout our country. The methods which are employed to achieve what we have, often very cruel, the Bible says those achievements will not last. They won't. They won't last. Injustice will not reign. In the business world, many have told me, and I know this is true, that our new immigrants from China come and they undercut with 
the influx of products that are sold at under market value price with the sole intent of driving out their competitors and then having a monopoly. And they don't care, do they? No ethics because if I run out of money or I go bankrupt, I just go back to China. And you may be the recipient of those things, whether in the academic world or in the business world, and you say, Lord, it is so unfair. I'm trying to run my business in a way that honors you, but no one else does. And they're succeeding. And the ways they do it are cruel. And they are oppressive. Here's what God wants you to understand. They may experience temporary success, but their accomplishments will not stand in the future. There's not going to be any Apple or Samsung or Facebook, no man-made thing that used cutthroat techniques that will be glorified at the end. Only that which is done for the Lord will be glorified. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. So continue to do what you do to glorify God in the academic world and in the business world. Because it is that which is accomplished with that as a foundation that will stand the test of time and there you will find eternal success. These are the words of God. He will be held to His words. Be assured and comforted. Verse 15 to 17. The fourth woe. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. You are filled with shame instead of glory. You also drink and be exposed as uncircumcised. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you, and utter shame will be on your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will cover you, and the plunder of beasts which made them afraid because of man's blood and the violence of the land and the city and all who dwell in it. The fourth indictment, the fourth woe against the Babylonians was that God would judge them because of their greed. Verse 15 to 17, their greed. I'm almost shocked, and you should be when you read verse 15. There's a very graphic description of the greed of Babylon taking advantage of others. And he uses a figurative example of a man causing a woman to get drunk. And when that woman is drunk, she loses her inhibitions. And when she's lost her inhibitions or her senses, he takes advantage of her in a sexual way. And I don't want to get any more graphic than that, but that's what verse 15 is talking about. The Bible says, Babylon, because you have done this for your greed, for what you want. In the same way, verse 16, I will make your nation drunk so that you will be shamed as well, that you will be a laughingstock, that you will lose all control. And how in verse 17 he says, how you've greedily stripped others of their goods. Now the other nations in their greed will take what you have. I know many of us, are the recipients of injustice because of the greed of others. They already have everything. Their businesses are so large. Their empires make so much money. Could they not give us a little? But in their greed, they push down the downtrodden. 
I want to encourage you and tell you, God says, don't worry. I will take care of it. In fact, he reserves some of the strongest language for the sin of greed on the part of others. Remember what Mark chapter 8, verse 36 says? You may not know the reference, but you know this verse for sure. Mark 8, 36, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and what? And loses his soul. That's what the Bible says. There will be those in this world who it seems that they are succeeding temporarily, who gains the whole world, but what? Loses his soul. Now, I don't want you going around mocking people, saying, ha-ha, you can gain the world, but you're going to hell. It's not the point of this. That may make us feel good. But in many ways, that is also the assurance. They may gain the whole world temporarily, but it's not worth losing your soul over. Greed has a way of affecting Christians as well. We are not immune to this. Be careful. So when greed begins to take place in your life, remember what you're fighting for. There is no need to fight over that which is temporary. The world can have it. You fight for what is eternal so that you do not lose your own soul. Finally, verse 18 to 20, look with me. What profit is the image that its maker should carve it, the molded image, a teacher of lies, that the maker of its mold should trust in it to make mute idols, the fifth woe. Woe to him who says to wood, awake, to silent stone arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet in it there is no breath at all. The final indictment against the Babylonians for which God is punishing them for is the sin of idolatry. Verse 18 is a great verse that speaks about the uselessness of idols and carved images. It gives you a logic question. The same logic given in the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah. If an idol is carved by a craftsman, how can it help him if the Creator is always greater than the creation, and therefore it is ridiculous when the Creator would worship something that it has created? If you are going to take a piece of paper and fold it into a paper airplane and said, yes, I have created a paper airplane, now I will worship it. It makes no sense. We say, what a joke. Who would do that? The same analogy, when a craftsman using metal or wood creates a carved image, it is ridiculous that we would worship it, and yet many do. That's what the Babylonians did. You may have idols in your home today, thinking that somehow having all the idols from all the different religions protects you from everything. Look what the Bible says in verse 18. It's an object of uselessness because it doesn't even speak. It is a mute idol. If you have idols at home, 
Can anyone raise their hand and tell me if your idol talks or not? You better hope it doesn't. Because if it does, you better call me. Because there's got to be something demonic with that. Your idols don't talk. It's not Chucky. It's not a movie. It's a cultural reference there for those of you who don't know. Idols do not talk. And yet, what does the Bible tell us in verse 19? And yet, people say, awake, arise, it shall teach. Things that don't talk, we worship, and we ask that it should teach us. How many idols eat the bowl of fruit that you place before it? How many idols eat the food generally you place before it? That should be the clearest evidence that those idols are nothing. And yet, we try to have them teach us how we need to live life. To follow certain days that these useless idols have supposedly said are good or bad days. That we are shackled, shackled by having to follow these things. That's why in our Christian faith, there are no idols here. There are no images There are no carved images that we worship. Why? Because the Bible is very clear. They are useless. Look at verse 20. Why? But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before Him. We don't worship carved images. We don't even have an image of Jesus and a crucifix. Because the Bible says... We serve a risen Savior. There is no place in the Scriptures where it tells us and carve even images of Jesus so that you can worship it. Because Jesus does not live in those images. His power is sit, sat enthroned on high. He is in His holy temple, the Word of God. And His majesty and His greatness compels us to honor and respect the One who is in heaven. Lest you believe that you also don't have idols in your life, I want to challenge you in in the 21st century. They may not be carved images, but idols in our lives are those which take priority over the things of God. They can be a television show, achievements, awards, success. I recommend you a book entitled Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. If you read that book, you will be convicted that there are many things in your life and my life that we make idols in our life. No better than those who worship carved images. And God has spoken very strongly on the idols of our lives. You and I better make sure that we don't fall into this sin. As we conclude, it may seem that God seemingly allows evil people to succeed even temporarily. But do not believe it. The Bible is very clear. He will judge all evil people from corruption to self-exaltation, from cruelty to greed to idolatry. And He will deal with these sins in the most severe of ways. It may not be in this life, but it will certainly be in the next. If you can only trust God, because the just will live by His faith. Then you can rest assured knowing that God is in control. 
My friends, this question is very important because many people have left the Lord and no longer walk with the Lord because they could not get a satisfactory answer to this question. Why does God allow evil people to succeed? They are the victims of unfairness. They are on the losing end of corruption, and they are angry with God that He didn't deal with it. And if they don't give an answer to their question, they become bitter, and they become angry, and they leave God. But God says, trust me, I will deal with them in my own appointed time. But relax, relax, I will deal with it. Even when the greatest injustice has been poured upon you, I will bring glory to it. The greatest injustice throughout history was when a sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ, died on our behalf. And from that great injustice, where it allowed evil people to succeed, what happened? It was redeemed because Jesus Christ saved the world. God has a purpose in everything. Human success is only temporary. I hope you and I are living for the eternal. I close with this illustration, a true story. It is a story of a very godly relative of mine. Before you start guessing who it is, you will not guess. I have hundreds of relatives on both sides of the family that live all around the world, all right? I know you don't know this person. But this relative was very, very godly and um, had called our family and told us that um, there were some evil people who wanted to extract money from this relative and filed a frivolous lawsuit. Examined the case, it was indeed baseless. And we prayed and prayed and prayed. We prayed that God's justice would intervene. We prayed that the truth would come out. Long story short, after a few years, of this being litigated, shall we say, with some under-the-table dealings, and it does happen in other countries other than the Philippines, the evil individuals won the legal case at the highest level. And a large sum of money was required to be paid to them from this very godly relative of mine. And so they got the money but you know what? When they got the money, these individuals were never able to enjoy the money they got. And we didn't pray for this, but this is what happened. Each one of them, from what I know, died very horrible deaths. Within a few months of final summary execution or summary judgment, one died of terminal cancer. One was murdered. One died of a heart attack. He's walking down the street and just collapsed and died. Not a single one of them was able to enjoy what they had won. At that time, I looked and I wanted to make the connection, but I can't because I don't know how the mind of God works. It's not within my right, even as a pastor, to say, look. But the reason I share this with you is when I can take a step back and examine how hard we prayed. But it didn't seem that God answered our prayer. In fact, it seemed that God allowed them to succeed. In the grander picture of things, God didn't. 
And this godly relative of mine continues today to have a close-knit walk with God. A situation that in others may have had them walking away from God. But she knew the truth, that the just will live by his faith. Are you willing to lose temporarily so that you will win eternally? Because that is the key to how you answer this question. Temporary success or eternal success? Because the Bible says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. May this answer give to some of you a bit of perspective when we desire to put God on trial, accusing Him that He willingly allows evil people to succeed. Help us to understand that He knows what He's doing. We may not agree with it, but the basis of it is always for our good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. I know many of us, including myself, struggle with this question at times. It is assuring to know that if we live for eternal success, that we won't get so caught up in temporary success of others. I know, Lord, it still annoys and angers many of us, including myself, when we are on the receiving end of injustice. But I thank you that you are God of justice. And I thank you that you see everything. And I thank you that you hold to your word. And I will hold you to the words you told the prophet Habakkuk. To trust you because you will deal with them in accordance with your will. So I will pull back and rest assured and find joy in my life. Because you do care. Because out of great injustice, you can bring about glory to your name. As, as exemplified through your son. And for that example, I am encouraged. In Jesus' name we pray.